This is They Create Worlds, episode 102, Stern Electronics. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. To start with, to end Alex's two months of hell, he comes bearing great and glorious news to us, the listener. That's right. Uh, it's been quite a time. I've had a lot of things going on. I was at the Smithsonian doing oral history interviews with early video game creators. I was busy getting the final proofs done for my book, all those final little edits. For some reason, my day job expected me to keep showing up too. Terrible people, I know. But at the end of this two months, I emerge with an official release date for my book. So I have recently learned that my book has gone to the printer, is officially there, getting all that duplication going, and the book has a release date of November the 28th, 2019. That is Thanksgiving Day for those of you that are part of our American audience. Just another Thursday in November, for those of you that aren't, that will presumably start shipping on that day. Now, as our listeners should know at this point, the book is already available for pre-order. It can be found at the CRC Press website. It can also be found at Amazon.com, presumably a few other vendors out there as well. That book, again, is They Create Worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, Volume 1, which goes up to about 1982. That gets fudged here and there. But... Early 1982-ish. That is uh, been available for pre-order. Some sites will probably still have differing dates. Those placeholder dates that sellers always put in when they don't know exactly when a book is coming. But the official word from the publisher is November 28th. Unless the uh, printing press burns down or something, I suppose, that is a date that we can rely on. So, yay, exciting book finally coming. And to celebrate the arrival of Alex's first book as a published author, we are also going to be running a contest. That's right. So we briefly mentioned this before, and we still don't have full details today, but I do get a number of copies from my publisher, Gratis, just for being the person that, you know, wrote the bloody thing. So we will be giving away two signed copies of the book. Now, that's going to be signed copies by both of us, me and Alex. That's correct. So I'm the one that wrote the book, but the podcast is a huge part of the brand. It's a huge part about what I'm trying to do here. And without Jeff, none of that side of things would be possible. So we are going to do a giveaway where both of us actually sign the book. There's going to be two copies that we give away. One copy will be for Patreon subscribers. By the way, did you know that we have a Patreon? No, I didn't, Alex. Not that I manage it or (laughs) keep an eye on it periodically. (laughs) Well, we do. We do have a Patreon. People that particularly appreciate the content we're putting out are free to throw a few bucks our way per episode. As we've said uh, in the past when we've very irregularly pushed this, the podcast will always remain free. The main episodes will always be out there for everybody. We don't have a lot of bonus content for people yet, though there are a couple of things that are patrons only. I think the infamous episode zero is uh, one of those, isn't it, Jeff? Yes, episode zero and all the hard and horrible editing of that. 
along with the show notes for the Tetris episode and I think one or two other little tidbits. Right. And we may try to do some other things. Uh, I know people like to have some little extras for their uh, donations, which is totally understandable. But for now, it's just a way of saying, hey, we like what you're doing. Uh, Proceeds go entirely back into the show, mostly for domain and hosting costs. If the Patreon ever gets big enough, we would also then use it to invest in fancy things like more equipment, research trips. What would you get if you absolutely could, Jeff? What would you add to your technical ensemble if you had moolah coming in? More acoustic panels. Yes, more acoustic panels. That's a good one. We have some pretty good sound equipment, but we certainly don't have anything approaching a real sound studio. So that's something we could absolutely put things towards. There's stuff that we can do with the money, but all the money goes to supporting the show. In one way, shape, or form. (laughs) That's just a brief plug. And another benefit of the Patreon coming up here is that if you are a member of it, you get two opportunities to win a signed copy of the book because we will be giving one away to Patreon subscribers and we will be giving one away to anybody who enters the drawing and we'll have the method of entry and all of that perfected later. The drawing's not coming up yet. So Patreons will have two opportunities to get one of these books while everyone else will have one opportunity. Now, we are giving two people copies. If you win the Patreon drawing, you don't also have a chance to get a second copy of the book through the regular drawing. But if you are not a winner in the Patreon drawing, you get two bites at the apple. So we will have full details on cutoff dates for being Patreon subscribers, cutoff dates for signing up generally, terms and restrictions that may apply, all of that kind of stuff uh, later because uh, I don't know exactly when I'm getting my books yet. And so until I know that I've got product in hand, we don't want to do a deadline or anything like that. But the main headline here is book is really, really coming. It will be out November 28. It is available for pre-order at the publisher CRC Press, as well as major online retailers. They create worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, volume one by Alexander Smith. So definitely very excited about getting Alex's book out there, being a published author, and try to really push the entire They Create World brand in this entire forthcoming year. We actually just started on our Twitter account doing a Throwback Thursday where we will do sort of like a history looking back 50, 40, 30, 20 years ago, starting in January 2020. But right now, to end out this year, we're looking at stuff that occurred in the 1950s and the 1960s. Feel free to follow us on Twitter to get an idea of some sort of interesting historical note every Thursday. And of course, our Twitter handle is TCW Podcast. All righty. And speaking of that They Create Worlds brand, we have an episode that we have to do. So, Jeffrey, where are we going to go today? We get to go back into the arcade this time with a wonderful land full of pinballs that has lived on to the present day, except not really because there was just this guy who carried on the torch. The companies have changed hands, died, burned up into little bits, but the guy said, you know, I really like that pinball thing so much, I'm going to make my own pinball company, and he's practically the only one still existing now. <laughs> That's but right. all that... We get to go back to the electronics land, back in the arcades, the land where he didn't necessarily always do pinball. 
Well, even back then, his plan was actually to always do pinball. It's just the realities of the coin-op market got in the way. We are, of course, talking about Mr. Gary Stern and his company back in the late 1970s and early 1980s, Stern Electronics, which for a very brief period of time was one of the biggest companies in coin-operated amusements, only to fall apart spectacularly when that whole market kind of went downhill. Uh, You may have heard about that repeatedly on this podcast. What? You mean the great video game crash? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, the great video game crash that we covered over three episodes for some reason. It was a big deal. Really was. But really, Stern, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s? Uh, 1970s is when the company was founded, though the history of the family and the business goes back much further than that. Really, to talk about Stern Electronics, you have to start with Gary Stern's father. Sam Stern. Now, we've talked about Sam Stern before because he was the longtime president of Williams Electronic Manufacturing. We kind of went over his history in that episode, but I'm still going to go over a little bit of it again within this context as well. Sam Stern got into the coin business as a young man in 1931. He had been in the clothing business at the time. He got a hot tip from a police officer who was a friend of his that coin-operated games were kind of the new hot thing. He was living in Philadelphia, one of the few big cities that never seriously went after pinball in the same way that New York, Chicago, and L.A. did. So he got himself some machines. It was a little rough going at first, but eventually he was able to build himself up into a pretty uh, powerful distributor in the Philadelphia area. So by the 1940s, the late 1940s, he was one of the more influential distributors in the country, but he wanted to break into the manufacturing business, kind of the next tier up. So he came to visit uh, Harry Williams in Chicago, walked into his office. Uh, According to lore, he sat down put his feet up on Harry's desk and said, why don't you sell me half your company? That's quite the ballsy move to go (laughs) in and say, yeah, you're doing this, pal, and you want to. Right. Now, obviously, they had a friendly relationship. I don't want to make it sound like it was a strong arm thing. Uh, Yeah, it was pretty brazen. And you see, Harry Williams was never big into being the owner of a company. He loved designing pinball machines. He just ended up running his own company because that's kind of what he had to do to design his own pinball machines. So he didn't just say yes right away. He went and took uh, a flight. Harry Williams was a pilot, and he liked to fly when he was trying to think about stuff and make decisions. So he took a little flight, came back, and was like, okay, let's do that. So he sold Sam Stern like 48 or 49% of the company. I think it was 49% of the company. Harry still kept the majority ownership. But Sam Stern came on, became the executive vice president of the company. Then they sold out to a company called Consolidated Sunray. We won't go into super detail because we've got a whole Williams episode for that. At that point, he became president of the company and remained president of the company all the way until about 1970, when he very briefly left the company because Bally was trying to reinvent itself. They hadn't been doing so well. They were doing phenomenal in slots as you would know if you listened to our Bally episode, but in traditional amusements and in pinball, they hadn't been doing very well for a bit. They actually lured Sam Stern away to be president at Bally 
and help them kind of retool things there because he had done a very good job of presiding over a modernization of Williams Pinball in the late 60s. And so they thought that maybe he could do the same thing for them at Bally. He stayed there just a couple of years and then went back to Williams and remained there until he retired in 1976. So that's Sam, and Sam's very important to this story, even though he is not the Stern that was the principal guy running Stern Electronics. Stern Electronics was run by Sam's son, Gary, though Sam was involved as well. Now, Gary Stern grew up within the coin-operated amusement industry and within the pinball industry because, of course, his father worked there. The first time he worked for his father was uh, at the age of 16 when he was a summer employee in the stockroom. But he'd been visiting the Williams factory for years before that. I mean, he literally grew up around this business and grew up around pinball. They sometimes had a contentious relationship. There was one time where Sam got mad at him and fired him. And then uh, the next day when he was not getting out of bed, you know, when his mother came in, it's like, you got to go to work. And he's like, dad fired me. And she's like, no, he didn't. (laughs) Basically, like, get to work. This will be resolved. You know, I mean, you know, so occasionally, I mean, they they had a decent, I think, father-son relationship, but it was, you know, not always smooth. But they got on well. In subsequent summers, he rotated all around the company. His first job had been in the stockroom. He worked in inventory, accounting, human resources, design. So he really learned the entire pinball business and the entire coin-operated amusement business at the feet of some of the greatest designers and greatest marketing people in the industry, uh, which Williams had at that time. He went to university uh, at Tulane in New Orleans, graduated in 1967 with an accounting degree, planned to not go any further, but his father really pushed him to go back to get a law degree, so he did get one in 1971 from Northwestern University. At that point, as I said, this was the very brief period of time where Sam Stern was working for Bally instead of working for Williams. So after he got that law degree, Gary actually came to work for Bally as a lawyer specializing in slot machines and slot machine law. Uh, In 1973, Sam Stern went back to Williams uh, to finish out his career there. So Gary Stern followed him, and he became, technically his title was assistant to the president, but he really got involved in all aspects of the business. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that his father was grooming him in this capacity as assistant to the president. One of the big things he did is he got their slot machine division started. Williams, very briefly in this period, tried to challenge Bally and slot machines. It did not go well. They ended that after just a short period of time. But Gary Stern was in charge of that for the period that they had it going on. 1976, Sam departs. Gary also departs the company at the same time. The slot machine thing never went anywhere. His father was not there anymore, so he probably wasn't going to be assistant to the president anymore. So Gary leaves the company at the same time as his father does, and he joins with a friend to create a company delivering free-to-play slot machines to Canada. There was a very brief period of time where I think it was the province of Quebec passed a law that was very, very poorly worded and ended up inadvertently legalizing slot machines as long as they were set to -to free-to-play. Odd, but okay. How do you make money doing that? Well, you know, you can still... The same way the Japanese people did with the metal games, I mean... You can still charge people to be in the facility and, you know, use the machines. It's just that you don't have any uh, gambling element directly to it. 
There was a brief period where these free-to-play machines were legal. That was rectified. But in this brief period, Gary and a friend of his founded a small company to do this uh, importing into Canada. Meanwhile, Sam's been retired for a little bit, and he absolutely cannot stand it. He's one of these guys that isn't just content to sit on the couch in front of the television or go out fishing every day of his life. This is a man of action. This is a man of danger. This is Dr. Tran? Something like that. And now we have to put that in the show notes. Hooray. (laughs) But yeah, so, you know, he didn't just want to be home sitting around all day. He needed something to occupy his time. His wife, Gary's mother, said to Gary, it's like, your father needs something to do. He is driving himself crazy. He's driving me crazy. We need to get him out of the house. He really was retired. He didn't want to go back to be a full-time executive running something. He just needed something that he could feel that he was a part of, feel that he was contributing to on some level. At this exact moment, a very fortuitous thing happened for the Stern family, which was not fortuitous at all for the families of Samuel Ginsburg and the late Samuel Wolberg. The company Chicago Coin, Chicago Dynamic Industries, which marketed games under the Chicago Coin label, went into bankruptcy and was going to be liquidated. I won't go into a huge amount of detail about Chicago Coin here, but it was one of the older companies in the business. It was founded all the way back in 1931 by Samuel Ginsburg and Samuel Wolberg. It was a company that produced pinball machines and coin-operated novelty amusements. It was never one of the top pinball companies, but... It released a broad range of product, both in the pinball and novelty fields, over the course of many decades, and did okay for itself as kind of the fourth biggest name in pinball, but a little better in some of the other fields like target shooting games or shuffle alleys, kitty rides. They were very broadly based, but they got completely killed by the transition to solid state, absolutely destroyed by it. They had had some very successful electromechanical games at the end of the 1960s. We talked about Speedway before in other contexts, which was a uh, fabulously successful electromechanical racing game. But once video came in, they did not have the expertise to move into that field. Now, to their credit, they did try to get into video, unlike some of the other pinball companies. They released some games that they licensed from other companies, most notably Exidy, but they never had a big hit, and the market was a challenging market in that time period. Since they lost their novelty game business and never got into the video games properly, and then they couldn't even keep their paltry pinball business going because pinball was going solid state and they had no idea how to do solid state, they were just screwed, quite frankly. At the end of 1976, they went bankrupt and two banks acquired all their assets and were going to liquidate them to pay off all the company's debts. So, I mean, this company was just dead and gone. But the assets of the company, the factory, the tools, the rights to some of the final games that they had created, etc., were now available from these banks. Gary Stern saw an opportunity here to found a new company out of the ashes of Chicago Coin that he could serve as the president of. His father could serve as like a vice president and come in and work half days and walk the factory floor and give sage advice and feel like he's doing something. 
they can have a nice little uh, manufacturing company in the pinball business. In terms of money, Gary Stern was involved in this. His younger brother, David, was also involved in this purchase, who was a physician. David remained a silent partner in the business until a, a couple of years later, he dumped his share of the firm entirely. But he was a silent partner. He was never involved in the managing, but he helped get the financing together. They got a loan from a bank called Drover's Bank in the amount of $2.7 million to finance a large portion of the purchase. They raised the other about 500000 they needed through uh, private financing with friends uh, in the business because, of course, Sam Stern had been in the business for a very long time. He knew a lot of people in the industry. So they went around to other distributors and whatnot to uh, get them to help raise the remaining money. And, in fact, one of the most important backers that gave the uh, biggest contribution out of that 500000 was actually Marty Bromley who we've talked about before, is one of the founders of Sega. At this point, uh, Bromley was long removed from Sega because he had left after the Gulf and Western Purchase in 1969, but he had still had a factory in Spain, Segasa, that he was running, and he was also running uh, slots and arcades in England, particularly in London. So he was still a very uh, influential guy, a pretty big mover and shaker in Europe both in manufacturing and in operating. So he contributed a sizable chunk of that money and was actually given half the firm's voting stock. So he was a very influential shareholder in the company, same guy who helped found Sega. So they get this money together, and in December 1976, they purchase the assets of Chicago Coin from these two banks. Some sources kind of say that they purchased Chicago Coin. It's not quite true. Technically, Chicago Coin was gone, so Stern Electronics is not a continuation of Chicago Coin. It's just, you know, the factory, the facilities, the tools, some of the last games, all of that stuff was available, and they scooped all of that up and incorporated a new company called Stern Electronics. So sort of to summarize all of that up, they were able to take pretty much the husk, the corpse of this company, and then take out all the stuff they wanted and able to build up and set up the bones and framework, and really were able to probably bootstrap themselves up to a level that would be really hard to do from scratch, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, pretty much, because, you know, especially in this period of time when the market was in transition, setting up a whole factory all by yourself would have been quite an extensive thing. I mean, they already had to get a lot of financing together just uh, by the remnants of Chicago coin. But by doing it this way and having all of that infrastructure from Chicago coin already in place, they could get going right away. There was just one problem, though. And what problem was that? Well, you may recall that I said that the main thing that killed Chicago Coin is they didn't have the ability to transition into solid-state manufacturing, manufacturing of solid-state machines. So if you purchase all of the assets of Chicago Coin and make that the basis of your company, you have the exact same problem. That would be a problem. Yeah, the entire pinball industry is going solid-state, and you've just bought a company that can't really do solid-state design. There was one other piece of the puzzle that they had to put together in order to do this. They had to find a contractor that could actually do the game design. They could do the manufacturing in their place. I mean, 
they had done video games, for instance. I mean, they had the ability to manufacture PC boards and all of that. So they could do the solid-state stuff with the equipment they had. They just didn't have the expertise they needed in order to create those games. Exactly. So to do that, they turned to a firm called Universal Research Laboratories. Universal Research Laboratories, which went by URL for short. URL had been founded back in 1968 by two former Seaberg engineers, the jukebox company Seaberg, named Edward Polonik and Bill Ologis. And these two guys saw that there was a new revolution happening at that time in coin-operated amusements. We're not talking about video yet, but we're talking about some of that early stuff like Periscope and Computer Quiz and Speedway, all of which we've talked about in one form or another in previous episodes. But they saw this coming along, and they thought to themselves, well, we have a lot of expertise with audio because they work for a jukebox company. So why don't we find our own company as a subcontractor making audio boards for coin-operated companies? And that's not the only thing they got involved in. They did some contract work in stereos and other things as well, other things involving sound. But one of the big areas they got into was providing sound boards for advanced coin-operated machines. And so that's what URL was doing in 1973 when a little company called Allied Leisure came to them and said, we want to get into this new video game business. We want to get into this new Pong business, but we don't have the capability to design these circuit boards. Why don't you make a Pong clone for us? And so they were like, sure, we'll do that. So we touched upon this some in our Pong clone episode. This episode, just as a side note, is really going to be a bringing together of all sorts of random companies that we've talked about in the past because Stern Electronics was very much a company that was built on the work of other companies, as we'll continue to see here. So they contract with URL to create their solid-state pinball designs. But very quickly, URL runs into problems as well, because you see, URL has actually not been doing well the past couple of years. They made a lot of money making Pong boards, but then when the Pong market suddenly collapsed, they were stuck with a bunch of surplus Pong boards, which was not helpful. No. What they decided to do is they decided to try entering the home with their Pong technology, with their coin-op technology. This was in 1974, so they were kind of ahead of the curve in trying to get into the home. At this point, this is before Atari's getting involved. This is just when Magnavox is the only company with a system, in this case, the Magnavox Odyssey. On the one hand, that was pretty smart of them to think to get involved in that business. They created a hardware that played a tennis game, a Pong-like game, a soccer game, and a hockey game. And those were the three primary forms of ball and paddle games that had been in the arcade, with, uh, you know, all with very abstract graphics with just the square or rectangular paddles and the little balls bouncing back and forth. Those were the three prime modes of doing things. So that's all a good idea. There's just one problem. It's coin-operated amusement hardware which is a wee bit more expensive, more costly, 
than the very primitive systems that were being done in the home at that time. So in 1974, they come out with video action. It plays these three games. And for some bizarre reason, probably because they had, I don't know if it's because they had extras laying around or what, for some bizarre reason, it also comes with its own 12-inch black and white television as part of the system, rather than plugging it into the TV that you already have in your home. So that made the price of this home system $499. And that's old $499, not we're buying a PlayStation 4 or 5 now, $499. Yes, let's use Mr. Inflation Calculator. Let's have a fun little trip together, a fun little field trip for the podcast. If in 1974 I purchased an item for $499, then in 2019... That same item would cost $2,598 and, wait for it, 84 cents. Don't forget tax. Plus tax. (laughs) This was nuts, right? I mean, this is absolutely nuts. And it's because they had an expensive coin-op technology and there were no way they were going to ever do that in the home. Including a television with it was just even crazier. So, uh, spoiler alert, that product flopped. Just a tad. In 1975, they tried again. They were like, okay, people didn't really need that television because everyone already has a television in their home. So then they released Video Action 2 in 1975 for $299. Because it's still coin-operated technology, it's still expensive compared to what people are using in the home. They have utterly failed to get the price down. So that brings it down to a far more affordable $1,426.97 in today's money. Still not buying it. No, remember this only plays three games. I mean, it's not like you can buy cartridges and get more games. This is all it does. So, Video Action 2 is a disaster, and then to make matters worse, Video Action 2 doesn't pass FCC testing once the FCC starts testing for interference. So, it doesn't sell well, and then they have to pull it off the market. So, then in 1976, they do Video Action 3, which is very similar to Video Action 2, it's just that it's been changed to pass the FCC testing. And then they get another bright idea into their head, that they're going to add driving games to the video action. So they contract with a company called Omnetics to create a chip for the driving stuff and then to combine the video action chip and the driving chip on a single substrate. So it's two separate chips, but they're on the same substrate together. That's cool because nobody's done a driving game in the home yet in late 1976. Everyone's still making ball and paddle games. So that gets retailers excited. But then the chip, because it's this weird kludge of two chips being combined into one chip, cannot be reliably produced and has horrible, horrible problems. So then their driving game is also a disaster. At the same time, they decide to create their own manufacturing operation for coin-operated games. So they've been a developer of coin-operated games, but they've been a contract developer for other companies. So they create a company called Electra. They create a label called Electra, rather. And Electra Games is where they are going to make their own arcade games. 
they actually make a very interesting racing game that they released through Electra called Pace Car Pro, which was interesting because it was in color at a time when color was still incredibly rare, and it had pretty decent handling, but the graphics were literally just dots on the screen. I don't know that we'll be able to find something to put in the show notes in terms of video. I'm not sure if there's any video out there or not, but we may be able to include a picture of a flyer or something just to give an idea. That game didn't sell well, so they're failing in the arcade. They are failing really miserably in the home, so they're approaching bankruptcy at the time that Stern Electronics contracts them to make their games. What ends up happening is Stern Electronics is like, okay, you know, Gary's a lawyer. Gary knows how the law works. He's like, what we'll do is I will guide your company through bankruptcy, help you get it through bankruptcy, and then I will purchase it on the other side. So that's what they do. So URL becomes a subsidiary of Stern Electronics and becomes their development capability, particularly their solid state development capability, while Stern Electronics is kind of the sales side of the company primarily and manufacturing. So that works out okay for them. They have their first kind of hit game in 1978 called Stars. It sells about 5,000 units, which isn't a lot, but it was a decent amount in this time period, though not as much as the latest solid-state hits were doing, which we're starting to do in the ten to 18,000 range. But it, you know, it did fine. I mean, they made money on it. They have good contacts in Europe because of the Bromley connection. And, in fact, he brings a Bromley associate into the company to help run it with him named Larry Siegel, whose father had for a long time been Marty Bromley's point man in California for the U.S. market, Bert Siegel. Larry Siegel had worked for Sega and Segasa in Europe. He had worked for Marty Bromley there. He had worked at Williams. So he knew the Stearns from working at Williams. So he came on and he really helped facilitate the international experience for the company because he had a lot of contacts in Europe from his many, many years working with Sagasa and Williams in that market. So Stern and Siegel and a third guy that was old hand in sales named Steve Kaufman kind of jointly were running the company. Sam Stern was coming in half days and being kind of the sage old man to give advice and consult with and walk around and get excited about things to keep him occupied. And, of course, mine his extensive contacts. And so by 1979, in 1979, they sold about 23,000 units of all their pinball games combined, which put them very solidly in fourth place after Bally, Williams, and Gottlieb in that order. But they had a nice business going. It was reasonably profitable. They had a good overseas business because they had good connections over there through Siegel. Things were kind of going okay at that point. But then, of course, something happened, which was the entire pinball market ground to a halt. This is the end of the golden age of pinball before the video games took over and then the eventual silver age of pinball that occurred after the great video game crash. Right. You know, 79, they do well. By 1980, it's very clear if you're going to remain in coin-operated amusements, you need to be in video. Space Invaders and Asteroids have happened, and this is real now. The Stearns had never been all of that interested in the video game business. I mean, they were pinball people. 
but they couldn't ignore it at this point. They were going to have to get involved with that business. Now, fortunately, at URL, they had some veterans of video game stuff, particularly a gentleman named Tony Miller. Tony Miller had been at Dave Nutting Associates, which, of course, we've talked about many times before. Dave Nutting Associates had been uh, very instrumental in the spread of video games in the arcade in the late 1970s. They released what was most likely the first microprocessor-based video game, Gunfight. They had a huge hit in 1976 with Seawolf. We've talked about some of these before. And then they created a home system called the Bally Professional Arcade that was kind of a hybrid video game console computer that never quite went anywhere. But DNA was making a lot of video games for Bally. Tony Miller ended up leaving the company. He became disillusioned during the development of the Bally Professional Arcade because he had been in charge of creating an expansion for it that would have turned it into a full-fledged computer with disk drives and keyboard and serial expansion. Because they had a lot of problems with the base console, they ended up scrapping that. So, you know, it was kind of disheartening to see all of this work that he had done go to naught. So he ended up leaving the company and uh, eventually ended up here at URL, which is now a subsidiary of Stern. So URL is told, we need a video game. I mean, this video game thing's big. We got to get into it. So Tony Miller's the guy that kind of has to put a team together to get a video game going. And so he basically ends up bringing in all of the people that he knew from DNA, some of which were still at DNA, to make a video game hardware, a coin-op hardware for the company. The two most important guys that he brings in, uh, there's a guy named Terry Coleman. Terry Coleman had been one of the hardware engineers on the Bally Professional Arcade. He was not the primary engineer, but he did a lot of the work on the chips working with the primary designer, Jeff Fredrickson. So he brings in Terry Coleman to be the principal hardware designer, to build them a hardware. Then to actually create the game, he brings in a guy by the name of Alan McNeil. Now, McNeil was a programmer uh, from Chicago, and he attended the University of Illinois at their Chicago campus. Initially, he was there to study art and architecture. He wasn't there to get involved with computers at all. But he ended up discovering the Play-Doh system. We've talked about Play-Doh in passing before. Someday we'll probably devote an entire episode or two to it. But it was that revolutionary system that had those plasma displays and those thousand terminals hooked up to a single computer and pioneered things like real-time chatting and email, electronic mail, and all of this other crazy stuff in the 70s before most systems had any of this. And he ends up discovering that Play-Doh system and falls in love with it and becomes a programmer instead. He abandons the art and architecture thing. He ends up working for a company called the Itty Bitty Machine Company, which was a computer store in Chicago. It was actually the first, probably the first, microcomputer store in Chicago. So he's right here on the ground floor of the microcomputer revolution. And then in 77, DNA is in Chicago. Dave Nutting Associates moves there late in 76 from Milwaukee after they get purchased by Bally. And he ends up taking a job at Dave Nutting Associates as a programmer. He programmed a couple of arcade games, the sequels to Gunfight and Seawolf. sequel to Gunfight was called Boot Hill. The sequel to Seawolf was just simply called Seawolf 2. And then he worked on the Bally Professional Arcade. He created the port of Gunfight 
that was built into the console that was an adaptation of the Dave Nunning Associates arcade game. He was very intimately involved with programming video games, but what he really wanted to do was design his own, not just program them. At Dave Nutting Associates, there was a very strict division between the designers and the programmers. Dave Nutting himself served as the primary designer for many of their games, but he had no technical skill. He was an industrial designer. He was not a programmer or an electrical engineer. So he would define game concepts, and then he would work with a programmer to actually implement his ideas. So Alan McNeil was chafing a little bit at just kind of being, in a way, sort of a contract programmer. I mean, he was on payroll, but it felt like he was just programming everyone else's ideas, and he wanted to do his own ideas. So he asked Dave Nutting, it's like, so, you know, I've been programming these games, and that's great and all, but uh, do you think that maybe I could uh, design a game? And Dave was like, oh, no, 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 no. You've been here for like two seconds. You don't have the experience yet. Designing a video game, that's a very, very whatever process and whatever, blah, blah, blah. No, no. Tons and tons of excuses to say no. (laughs) Yeah, get a few more games under your belt and then maybe we'll see about you doing your own thing. Well, that didn't sit well with Alan McNeil at all, so that was it. He was like, well, (laughs) I'm not working here anymore. So again, he knows Tony. Tony knows all these people, so Tony recruits him for URL and for Stern. He's originally hired to do a uh, thing for one of their pinball machines, an electronic thing, a programming thing for one of their pinball machines. But he does get a promise out of them that once he finishes that, he can actually work on a video game, which is what he truly wants to do. So Terry Coleman designs this hardware. And then Alan McNeil is going to create a game for it. So what should he make as a game, he thinks to himself. Well, like I said, he was very involved in microcomputers and in the hobbyist computer scene. So he'd been following what was going on in there, and he had played games on his computer, and he had subscribed to magazines and done type-in listings, etc., etc. And there was one game that he particularly liked that he had seen in those magazines. It's a type-in listing called Chase. We haven't talked about Chase yet, but it's another one of these games that came out of the time-sharing era of mainframes and mini computers in the late 60s and then made the transition to become a piece of microcomputer software through the magazines and type-in listings. So we know this game was on the DTSS. We don't know who created it on the DTSS, but we do know how it got to the wider world. There was actually a guy working for the Navy named Bill Cotter who visited Dartmouth in about 1975 or 1976. He doesn't remember exactly when. Again, this guy who, for whatever reason, researched this obscure game, you know, actually tracked down Cotter, and that's how we have this story. He um, came to Dartmouth for a sporting event, like hockey, I think it was. And while he was there, because he was working with computers, he was interested in this stuff. He also took a look at the DTSS and everything while he was in town. Now, it just so happened at the same time, he was looking for programs because he had a lot of co-workers that he was working with on the time-shared mainframe at his day job where they were working on a ballistic missile submarine program for the Navy who hadn't really used computers before, who weren't really comfortable with computers. So he had been looking for programs to introduce to his co-workers to help acclimate them to a computer environment. Completely coincidentally, that's not what he went to Dartmouth for, but he saw this chase game and thought it was fantastic 
So he ported that game to the Honeywell system at his own office and then also submitted the program to Creative Computing as a type-in listing. Then it permeated after that. It appeared in several more magazines. It appeared in David All's follow-up to 101 Basic Computer Games called More Basic Computer Games. And it's just like Lunar Lander or Star Trek or some of the games we talked about in our time-sharing episode, it just became another one of these simple little games that was everywhere. So Alan McNeil saw these games in one of the magazines, not sure which one. He has one that he says he saw it in, but ironically that seems to be one of the few that didn't have it in it. So he saw it somewhere is the important thing. And thought that if he made a real-time version of this, it could make a pretty cool arcade game. So he decided that he'd basically recreate it exactly. He'd have a room, he'd have robots, he'd have you, he'd have obstacles. Except instead of being turn-based, everyone's moving at the same time. So you kind of have to move your guy around the room in such a way as to get the robots to collide with each other or other things and kill themselves. Well... It seemed like a good idea in theory, but in reality, it was something of a problem. Because it turns out that when you have all of this going on in real time instead of in turns, it happens really, really fast. There was no way for the player to get all the robots to collide with things before one of the robots or like five of the robots converged on him and killed him. There just wasn't a game there. Okay, well, I still like this premise, so how can I change it so that the player is going to be okay here, that they have a chance? I know. I'll let the player also be able to shoot the robots. So now the robots will still kill each other if they run into each other, or if they collide with something, they'll still die. But to get the ones that don't get caught by those kind of static traps, player will also be able to shoot them. Okay. Well, crud. That really doesn't help much, because the robots are still just too darn fast. This is not going to work. Okay, so what's our problem here? Clearly our problem is that the robots move so fast that they converge on the player before he can kill them all. Well, how can we slow the robots down? Theoretically speaking, you could make the robots slow to an absolute crawl, but then you have the exact opposite problem. It's too easy and it's boring. You need the robots to be moving at a certain pace to make it an exciting arcade game. Well, what if we put other things in their way then? Why don't we make it a maze instead? Okay, now we're getting somewhere. So if we have walls around the room and the robots have to go around those walls to get to the player, that slows them down enough that the player has a chance to shoot them now. All right, now we've got a game going. So how do we make this interesting with mazes? Well, he decided to create an algorithm to generate a random series of connected rooms that the player would move through killing robots. He created this using a a random number generator with a seed, even though no two playthroughs are going to be exactly alike because it's randomly generated mazes. Once you have your seed, everything stays consistently the same for that session which means that you can return to previous rooms so you can run all around this place, go back and forth between rooms, and the program, the game, can remember the state of things. So now we have a game where you can move around through a maze. There are robots. They're trying to kill you. You try to kill them back, shoot them in the head. His axe is on fire, etc., etc., etc. And now we've got a game. There's just one more element that's kind of missing here. 
you clear a room of enemies and that room is now empty, but you can move back and forth between rooms. The game remembers the state of the room. So once you clear a room, you can go back to an empty room. You can stay in the empty room. You can wander around, whatever. Now, that's not good for an arcade game. An arcade game, because it is regulated for taking about 90 minutes of your time and keeping gameplay moving and keeping players moving so people keep putting more money in the machine, we can't just let you stay in a cleared room forever and ever because we got to get someone else on this machine. So that's when he came up with the final little bit. He decided he would need an invincible enemy that would travel through cleared rooms and kill the player on contact. And at this exact same time, there was this craze going on for memorabilia with a very simple yellow smiley face. You remember these yellow smiley faces, don't you, Jeff? Yellow buttons with, like, little dots for eyes and a little smiley mouth. No. No? Maybe if I saw one, I might recognize it. Initially, I thought you were talking about Pac-Man, but then I'm not sure. It's like emojis before emojis? Well, sort of. Look in your Discord, Jeff. Have a nice day. There seems to be a piece of blood on that. Well, obviously, Watchmen used that same smiley face, but it didn't originate with Watchmen. Okay, I didn't know. The only time I've ever seen that really was with Watchmen. It was a fad in in the early 80s. A a graphic designer came up with that design and the whole have a nice day thing, and then it just went viral before we knew what viral was, and it started appearing on T-shirts and stickers and bumper stickers and, like, everything. Alan McNeil absolutely hated it. He thought it was insipid and corporate and blah. So he decided that his invincible enemy would be a floating smiley face that would bounce all around the room. And then Tony Miller gave it a name because back at Dave Nutting Associates, where both of them worked, there was an office manager there named Dave Otto, who was notorious for trying to impose really ridiculous edicts on the office. One time he decided that everyone really should be working set nine to five hours, which programmers never do. So he was actually locking the doors and locking people out during the times he thought they shouldn't be working. He would pipe music through the PA system that he liked and nobody else was a fan of. Just all sorts of little things like that. If an office manager decides to go to the dark side, an office manager can be a very horrible thing. And that was Dave Otto. So they named the smiley face, Tony Miller named the smiley face Evil Otto. After Mr. Dave Otto. So the game we've been talking about this entire time, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, is a little arcade game called Berserk. Berserk. Are you familiar with Berserk, Jeff? No. I mean, it's early 80s. It's before we were in the arcade. See, it's a pretty well-known game in early 80s arcade circles. Uh, It's exactly as I describe. You move around these mazes shooting at robots, and if you stay in a room too long, Evil Otto comes in and kills you if you don't move to another room. The game was actually named after a series of books featuring killer robots, the Berserker series by Fred Saberhagen. That's what McNeil named the game after. It was initially actually a black and white game because at this time color was still not very common. But then Defender came out or Defender premiered at the AMOA show in October 1980. And then the powers that be at Stern were like, oh, crap, that game is going to kill us because it has such amazing, vibrant color graphics. 
We need vibrant color graphics. Give us vibrant color graphics. Yeah, and so they kind of did. They did a real kludgy kind of color generator that could generate a limited number of colors and did that as an overlay over the original graphics. They didn't have time to do anything else because their game was coming out at about the same time Defender was coming out at the very end of 1980. They didn't want to delay the game. The color is primitive, but it is there when it almost wasn't. Another neat thing that it had is there was actually somebody that came around peddling a sound chip, a voice chip, a voice synthesis chip. So they ended up putting some voices in it as well. And, you know, this chip was pretty primitive and had pretty limited memory, so the sound sampling wasn't all that great. But it was perfect for robots because with the limited memory and limited sound sampling capability, anything that you recorded with it kind of ended up kind of garbled and robotic sounding anyway. It worked really well for the game. It said they would say things like humanoids must not escape and chicken fight like a robot. If you kept moving between screens without killing any robots, Mm -hmm. the robots would start calling you a chicken because you kept running away from them and start taunting you. The most fun thing they did is in the attract mode of the game, the game would actually speak to players and say, coin detected in pocket. (laughs) And apparently there was one player, this is a semi-anecdotal, but apparently there was one player that the people at Stern talked to that asked them, it's like, how did you guys do that? How did it know that I still had coins? I kept putting coins in to see if it would stop asking and it kept asking me. And how did it know I had all those coins in my pocket? Metal detector, obviously. (laughs) Right. Uh, Of course, it was just a random phrase, but (laughs) sometimes it fooled people into thinking that it really knew that they had coins on them. Oh, the game knows that I have coins on me. I must play this game right now, else I am not going to have the fun. Exactly. So Berserk was released at the end of 1980. It premiered at the uh, AMOA and then uh, started shipping in November 1980, and it sold 15,000 units. That was pretty good for the time. I mean, in the golden age, obviously, sales numbers were getting bigger and bigger. 15,000 doesn't make it one of the biggest games of the period, but it's definitely in that second tier of really solid hits that made a lot of money for people. So that was a pretty big deal. Berserk, their first original video game. The other thing that they had that was a really big deal is they ended up making a deal with Konami. So, of course, we have a whole Konami episode. We're not going to go into Konami's history here. But suffice it to say that in this early 1980s period, Konami had kind of established itself well enough at home, even though it hadn't had any big hits yet, that it was looking to start coming overseas, like so many uh, other Japanese companies in this period. So they actually engaged an agent in the United States named Barry Feinblatt, who ran an import-export company called Universal Affiliated International. This has nothing to do with the video game company Universal or the movie studio Universal. This is just a company that he had that specialized in imports and exports, Universal Affiliated International. So Feinblatt knew the Konami people and he knew the Stern people, so he got some samples of some of the games that Konami had done and brought them to Stern, and Stern took a look at them, Gary Stern did, and was like, okay, these look cool, we can license these. So actually, the very first video game that Stern released, Berserk was their first original game, but the very first game that they released in video was actually a Konami game. In Japan, it was known as Kamikaze. In uh, the United States, it was released as Astro Invaders. 
in June 1980. It was just your typical uh, Space Invaders derivative kind of game. It sold a few units. It didn't do brilliant, but it didn't do terribly. So they did that. They did another game called The End that was really a strange little game the Konami did. It was a Space Invaders clone, but the bunkers that your gun battery could hide behind, like in Space Invaders, were made up of individual bricks, very similar to the bricks in the game Breakout. And the aliens would actually swoop down and steal the bricks from your bunkers and bring them up to the top of the screen. And they would spell out the word the end with the bricks. If they were able to spell out the word before you killed all the aliens, or the two words rather, before you killed all the aliens, then your game would be over. It was not a particularly successful game, but that's just kind of a a strange little quirk. But the big thing is that because of this relationship with Konami, they got Scramble. We already talked about Scramble in our Konami episode, so we won't go into detail on it again here. Uh, This is the great thing about having so many episodes. We can just refer people back to things instead of describing them. But it was, uh, we may remember, the first true scrolling shooter in the sense that we think of them today. Defender was a shooter with scrolling first, but it was moving back and forth within a constrained area. Scramble was... We have forced scrolling. You're hurtling through stages with your spaceship, blowing up everything in sight. So Scramble was a huge hit. And Super Cobra, its sequel, was a huge hit. So those two games between them sold almost 30,000 units in the United States for Stern. Between Berserk, Scramble, and Super Cobra, they did gangbuster business in 1981. They went from 28 million in revenue in 1979 to 108 million in revenue in 1981. They were one of the biggest companies out there. They were in the top six. So the big three were Atari, Midway, and Williams. They had like two thirds of the market all between them. But then after them, there were three other companies that controlled most of the rest of the market, which was Stern and Sega and Centuri. So Stern was like number four or number five, depending on how you looked at it, uh, across the entire coin-operated amusement industry in terms of sales. They became really successful here in 1981. So really, at this point, they have nowhere else to go but up because they're fighting with the other two on the lower tier three, holding that over that third of the market. Right. And then... They need to try and bust out of that and try to knock one of the big dogs down in order to gain the proper footing to advance as a company. And they have Konami in their side. They got all this other stuff going well for them. So obviously they made it on up. Well, you would like to think so. But as we kind of hinted at the top of the episode, this is a company that didn't last very long. Right after the big rise came the disastrous fall, and there were a few things that happened here. Obviously, the big overriding thing is the whole market crashed. The company would have probably limped along okay if that hadn't happened. But even without the market crash, there were signs that the company was taking some bad turns. First of all, once they were awash in cash after the success of those video games, Berserk and Scramble and Super Cobra, They were looking to expand the company, and they thought that this was the absolute right time to get into jukeboxes. Oh, no. (laughs) Right. The jukebox market had been in steady decline for over a decade. 
A lot of things were working against it. Obviously, you had uh, compact cassettes in the home, which meant that people could more easily and cheaply buy the music they like and just listen to it at home. In bars, the primary venues, bars and taverns, which had been the primary venues for jukeboxes, you had other competition for entertainment. Most notably, you had bars having televisions installed, and you also had a switch to Muzak, or music that is piped in through speakers, through a playlist that is chosen by the establishment, rather than the one-quarter-at-a-time method of people choosing their own songs on the jukebox. In Japan, you have karaoke coming in in this time period, which also is a very serious blow to jukeboxes. So the jukebox industry is in very serious decline. But the reason Stern got involved, I mean, they weren't stupid. They knew the market was in decline. They thought that they could do for jukeboxes what Bally had done for pinball by going solid state, and that is using advanced technology, more solid state components, LCD and digital screens rather than old analog push-button stuff in order to make the jukebox more exciting and more enticing. So in this period of time, Seaberg, which we've mentioned even in this very episode before, which had been the largest of the big four jukebox companies, entered bankruptcy. So in 1981, they were able to get Seaberg for a song. I mean, they barely had to pay anything for it. So they decided to buy Seaberg to get into jukeboxes and try to revitalize the jukebox business with new technology. Larry Siegel is actually placed in charge of it. It was basically just a coin flip. You know, there are these three guys, like I said, Stern's the president of the company, and then Kaufman is the big sales guy, and then Siegel's another big sales guy and marketing guy that also has contacts in Europe. So it was basically, because I've talked to Larry Siegel, it was basically a coin flip. It's like, well, somebody needs to run this business, and they chose him. So Siegel runs Seberg, and there's just not a lot they can do. They try to do the technology thing, and jukeboxes are still dead. That doesn't go well for them. Of course, pinball was the main reason the company was founded. And as I said, pinball sales ground to a halt. So pinball was a dead end for them. They were still trying to make pinball tables because that really was their first love. But there really wasn't any place to go in pinball anymore. Because during that period of time when video games were big, I mean, pinball sales really did just virtually stop. Just by example, they released a game in 1980 called Flight 2000 that sold 6,000 units, which, you know, is not terrible, not great. That was the last time that they were able to uh, sell a pinball machine that sold more than 2,400 units, and most of their tables sold fewer than that. The market just completely collapsed, and in mid-1982, they actually halted pinball production entirely. On the video front, Alan McNeil had made this brilliant game for them, Berserk. Absolutely brilliant. But then he got very fed up with the company because there was a lot of cost cutting going on. Stern was becoming very cost conscious. He claims there was also theft going on at the plant. That's what he said in an interview once. And so he just hated the work environment, hated the coworkers, hated the atmosphere. So he left. The guy that made their biggest hit left. They uh, had a couple other guys that came in that were half decent. They weren't terrible. Two guys named Chris Oberth and a character named Gunners Lasitis Jr., who had been working for Marvin Glass Associates. 
Chris Oberth actually had a very similar path to Alan McNeil in that he had discovered the Plato system while he was attending college in Chicago and was very involved in early computer game programming. He did games that appeared in type-in listings and were sold by some of the earliest companies. Then he ended up going to Marvin Glass Associates, a toy design consulting company, and that's where he met Lasitis, and then the two of them came to Stern. They made a couple of games that were okay. They did a driving and shooting game called Armored Car that was all right. They did a takeoff on Robotron called Tasmania that was okay. But none of them really sold very well. I mean, they weren't hits in the same vein as Alan McNeil's Berserk was. They had the Konami deal, but it also turns out that Konami didn't have a huge number of really big hits after Scramble and Super Cobra. The one game that Konami had that was a huge hit after Scramble and Super Cobra and was a massive, massive hit was, of course, the game Frogger. But, and we talked about this in our Konami episode, because Konami had had such a terrible time with piracy on Scramble and Super Cobra in Japan, terrible time with the Yakuza getting involved in everything, they decided that with Frogger, which they had hoped would be a sizable hit, that they would have to have a bigger factory produce that to avoid the same cloning problems. So they licensed the game to Sega. And so Sega got that game in both Japan and the United States. So Stern released basically all of the other Konami games that were released in 1981 and 1982, but they didn't get the biggest one. Sega did. Which just really hits their pocketbook. Exactly. Probably the most successful of the Konami games that they did get was a game called Tutankhamun, which was a maze game released in 1982, where you're collecting treasure and finding a key to the exit while avoiding enemies. It has a little bit of an Indiana Jones feel. Obviously, it has some Pac-Man derivativeness to it. Uh, We'll put that in the show notes. That was definitely a minor hit and did okay for them. So the Konami deal got them some minor successes, but not big hits. Their internal guys, particularly Oberth, made a couple of games that are okay, but nothing great. So they're floundering in video, they're dead in pinball, they're a disaster in jukeboxes. And then, to make matters worse, you know how I said that Marty Bromley was one of the major investors and owned half the voting stock of the company? Well, in late 80 or early 1981, I forget which, All of Marty Bromley's businesses in London get raided by the police because he is allegedly skimming profits off the top of his slot machines that he's not supposed to. He's taking in money that he's not reporting. It's a huge scandal for Bromley, and because Bromley is one of the largest shareholders in Stern, it becomes a huge scandal for Stern. They have to buy him out. They can't let him continue to hold that much stock in the company when he's under indictment for skimming coin-op profits. I mean, they can't have that hanging over their heads. Mm-hmm. So they have to buy him out, and they have to spend a cool $15 million buying him out of the company. He just owns that much stock. Right. He's not cheating them. It's just they have to. So that's another big hit to the pocketbooks. They actually get a loan from another distributor friend of theirs named Al Simon, who helps keep them afloat after they buy out Bromley. But when you put all of these things together... It's a big storm of bad luck, bad circumstances, bad this, bad that, that just pretty much just keeps kicking them down. 
Right. And then the entire market collapses right in the middle of all of this. You put all of that together and that is kind of the end of the very short run of Stern Electronics. Now, Gary Stern does okay, as we kind of hinted at. He's still actually in the business today. What happens is after the video game market crashes and it's clear that pinball's going to start coming back, the company Data East, the Japanese company, decides to expand into pinball. And Gary Stern is somebody who is known as somebody who has worked in the pinball industry extensively. And so Gary Stern and Data East end up getting in bed together and Stern founds a pinball division at Data East. I think some sources mischaracterize this as Data East buying Stern Electronics, but that's not the case. Stern Electronics was dead and gone. Gary Stern and Data East end up coming together separate from the old Stern Electronics. So very much in the same way that Stern Electronics bought out Chicago Coin, Stern Electronics gets bought out and their remnants and stuff gets incorporated into a new company. Yeah, in a way. I'm not sure that they got as much equipment as Gary Stern did when he bought Chicago Coin. But yeah, no, it's very similar. It's absolutely very similar. So then Daddy's Pinball, uh, you know, we're not going to tell the whole story. Maybe we will someday, maybe we won't. But, you know, they do okay for themselves. They have 25% of the market at one point, which is pretty good. Then when Data East hits some financial trouble, they sell out to Sega. And so Data East Pinball becomes Sega Pinball. And that is an actual continuation of the same subsidiary. It's They actually sell the subsidiary. Sega Pinball persists until the end of the 90s, and then they shut down because Pinball's not doing so well. And a couple of years after that, Gary Stern establishes his own company, Stern Pinball, which still exists today and is really the last big producer of pinball today. So Stern Electronics and Stern Pinball, even though they have very similar names and even though Gary Stern is the principal in both of them, they are actually two different companies. Because Stern Electronics was this very short-lived, basically just 77 to 84 company that didn't last long, but had an outsized impact, both because Berserk was a massive hit and is a game that people still fondly remember today, and because, of course, the Sternball legacy carries on and continues to be the one big name left in pinball. So that's that. That is Stern Electronics, a company that lasted such a short period of time that we could actually cover it coherently in in a single episode. A miracle, I know. Somewhat, yes. And it's kind of crazy how this one little company had its hands and had some influences from all of the stuff that we've covered in the past here, where you had Konami being brought in, you've had all these different companies just having some sort of influence on them and them in turn having influences on major players in the industry further on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Gary Stern is a true coin guy. You know, video became a big part of CoinOp, but video games and CoinOp are two different worlds that just happen to collide at various times. Video games can be characterized sometimes by a lot of companies rising and falling quickly, people getting in and out, etc., CoinOp is a very small, even still today, kind of insular community of people. And Gary Stern is a true coin man. Because of that, as you said, I mean, his life has really touched on a lot of the other companies we've discussed, like Williams or Konami or Data East. And that's just because when you're a real coin man, when that is your first love, is that business of bars and pool halls and arcades... There's only a small number of people truly dedicated to that area, and they just they keep bumping into each other over and over again throughout the history of things. 
Well, I guess that leaves us with one last thing that I get to ask you every single time. What shall we delve into as our next topic on the 1st of December? Well, I think we should go international again. It's been a while since we've checked in with the good folks at Europe. We do have some listeners over there in Europe. Thank you so much for your uh, support. And uh, we should talk about some of their companies and some of their games from time to time as well. Uh, So I thought we'd talk about a a company, uh, an interesting little company, another one that we can, wonder of wonders, probably do in a single episode, called Elite Systems. Now, this has nothing to do with the game Elite which we've done in a previous episode and which is a huge British game and a huge contribution to the wider industry. It was one of our top 20 in that recent top 100 that we did. But Elite Systems was a company that came along in the early to mid-1980s, and they were part of a real paradigm shift in the British industry because the British industry at the start was very much bedroom coders. It was people making informal clones of arcade games they like or very simple this or that. And then in the mid-80s, it kind of got much more commercialized and licenses, both in terms of other entertainment licenses and the licensing of coin-op games became a big part of that British 8-bit computer industry. And Elite Systems was a company that was right at the heart of that and was very instrumental in that shift in the British market. And so they're a company that wasn't around for too long, again, but they definitely, or I should say, wasn't relevant for too long because they actually persisted for many, 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 many years after they were no longer relevant. But their period of relevance was very small, but it had an outsized impact, and we can probably cover it in a single episode. So let's go back across the pond and discuss Elite Systems. It's not Elite, but it's Elite Systems. Next time (laughs) on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create World, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be pre-ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 